Father, it is sweet to come to you in prayer as the song we just sang reflected and all of the songs that we sing and heard reflecting your glory and the sweetness of our reconciled relationship to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him who is at your right hand forever interceding for us, a high priest who will never cease in that role. What great confidence we have because of Christ, because of the resurrection, and every promise that is yes and amen in him. We ask now as we prepare our hearts to, for the table, as we prepare our hearts for this act of worship that you've handed down to us to remember through the ages until you return, that you would grant us to hear your voice, to have hearts that respond in faith to this glorious news of your resurrection. And it is in your name, the resurrected Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 10, and I will try to finish it and cover all 10 verses so we can continue moving through the end of Matthew's gospel. And of course, as we have noted last week, that this is Matthew's record of that great and tremendous and central event to the Christian faith, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Matthew's account is specifically designed to bear witness to the resurrection of Christ, but more than that, it is to give hope to his people and to give us hope. The very foundation of our hope as Christians is that Christ has risen from the dead, That we have a Savior who is not lying, rotting in a tomb somewhere, but we have a Savior who has risen from the grave, who has defeated death on our behalf, who has removed the sting of sin, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father to intercede for us, who has sent His Holy Spirit as a seal and a guide to us until we are with Him face to face in glory. And all of this is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if there's one thing that we need as people, as Christians, as human beings, is hope. But as Christians particularly, because we're the only ones that have any solid foundation for hope in this world. But we all need hope. And no one needed hope or illustrates that more, really, in some ways than these disciples who we meet here in Matthew 28 and in the Gospels. You can only imagine the host of feelings that they were feeling, the dismay that filled their hearts as their world had just been turned upside down in the events of the last few days. It was, for some, even more like a nightmare than a dream. Their their hopes had been dashed to the ground. Everything that they had believed about Christ, for some, seemed to be confusing and wrong. The Savior who had showed such great power and whom they had come to love so deeply was now broken and dead before their eyes. Everything they thought about the Messiah, everything they thought about the kingdom, which was not a secondary issue in their life. It was their very identity as Jews and as the nation that God had chosen out and given his promises of the kingdom and the promises of the Messiah All of their ideas about that had been turned upside down. And no doubt they were, again, confused. They were dismayed. Their hope was gone. Their hope was gone. As a matter of fact, Luke mentions that when Jesus later appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, 
he describes them as looking sad. Looking sad. Their hopes had been dashed to the ground. And even the women that we meet here in Matthew chapter 28 aren't coming as bastions of faith. They're coming having lost their hope as well. Their hearts are filled with sadness. They're not going there expecting to find an empty tomb. They're going there, in fact, to care for what they think is a dead and a rotting corpse in the grave where they had seen him laid just three days earlier. And so... This word that comes to them and that comes to us in Matthew 28 is a word of great joy and it's a message of great hope. In fact, it is the very hope that we who believe in Christ have rested our lives. It is the witness to the reality that Christ has risen from the dead, that he's no longer there, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, that he is risen from the dead for his people and for us, that he is alive, that everything he said is true, that all of the promises are real, and that now he would forever be with his people. This was a tremendous message, and it's a fact that changes everything for the believer. It changes everything, really, for the world, but particularly for the believer and for these fearful disciples. Jesus had risen from the dead. It changes everything about their view of the kingdom, their understanding of salvation. It changes everything about their view of the world and what God is doing. And so this really stands as a great encouragement to us above, above all else of our unshaking hope in Christ. Our unshaking hope in Christ. Because we can lose hope in this world just like these disciples did. We can lose hope in our own lives when everything seems turned upside down. We can lose hope when we see like all of the things we expected to happen in life and in this world don't go the way that we thought. The resurrection just as much reminds us that God is accomplishing things far beyond what we can see. And he encourages our faith as he encourages theirs. Now, each of the gospel writers, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives their own account, their own independent account of the events of the life of Christ throughout the gospels, and particularly here concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the details of his resurrection from the dead. This is, in each of their testimonies, one governed and sanctioned and guided and affirmed by the Holy Spirit who inspired them to write it down. But each of them, because they're independent witnesses, give different details. They emphasize different facts. That's a point that we've noted before. But together, their witness gives a composite picture of all of the events that were surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as well as his death. And each one, though not agreeing in, or not uh, emphasizing every detail the same, nonetheless give us this wonderfully glorious account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, instead of going through and comparing, this is kind of a detailed discussion it would be, all of the differences in the Gospels and how they meet, we'll simply note those details as we walk through Matthew's account. And Matthew's account particularly is written to serve this purpose, namely to give three solid witnesses, to give three witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, of course, the ultimate purpose is to give unfailing hope to his people. Those three witnesses in the count that we'll read this morning are the witness of the women, the witness of the angel, and the witness of the risen Christ. 
So let's read this together, and then we'll go through it briefly. Beginning in verse 1 down to verse 10 of Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, well, we'll stop at verse 10. Got carried away. So this is Matthew's then account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And let's look first then at the witness of the women. The witness of the women. He says, after the Sabbath, after it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the grave. Now, this is very interesting that in all of the gospel accounts, and in fact, in what happened in reality, is that it is the women who are the first who come to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew mentions Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. The other gospel writers note that there were other women also who had come early in the morning. Mark mentions Salome, who was also present. Luke notes that they brought spices. And he also notes that there were other women there and a lady named Joanna. Probably some of the other women or the many women that were mentioned by Matthew in verse 55 who were looking on from a distance and seeing all of the events related to his crucifixion. So there were actually many women who were there. Mary Magdalene is mentioned particularly because she is singled out in these various appearances of Christ after the resurrection and because she was probably a significant figure in the early church. Remember, she is the one out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. And they came here after the Sabbath, Matthew notes, as it began today towards the dawn, towards the first day of the week. Towards the first day of the week. This then would be the third day according to Jewish reckoning, after he had been crucified and laid in the tomb. That's the significance of noting the day. Jesus was buried probably between 5 and 6 p.m., somewhere on Friday. He was in the grave all the day on the Sabbath, which would have been a Sabbath, uh, Saturday. And then he was raised sometime in the early morning on the Sunday. Now, in Jewish reckoning, any portion of a day counted for the whole day. That was a common way that they spoke. That's how they thought about time. So that would be then the three days that Jesus was in the tomb. Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday when he was raised. And so here they come on the third day. And they find an amazing sight. Namely, that the tomb is empty. That the tomb is empty. That the one whom they had come to 
treat with spices to, to give a more proper burial is no longer there. He is no longer there. He has risen from the dead. He has risen from the dead. Now, just as a side note here, it is that momentous event, it is the momentous event of the resurrection of Christ that redefined for the new covenant worshipers the very day that God had set aside for worship. We are gathered here today on Sunday and not Saturday because that very reality is a picture that Christ rose on the first day of the week that he rose. So our gathering on Sunday is in fact an enduring and perpetual testimony of Jesus Christ's resurrection on the third day of the on the third day after being crucified. In fact, in Revelation 1:10 it's called the Lord's day. That's where we get that from. And so here they are these two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, as noted by Matthew. Now, I mentioned that this is significant that It is women who came to bear the first testimony to the disciples of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And although we'll mention this a, a bit more next week, here I would simply note that's significant for this reason. Women were not afforded much credibility in that culture. Matter of fact, their testimony was not allowed in a court of law. They were not the ones that... If this were an account that were made up, as some would attack, if this were an account that were simply fabricated by the followers of Jesus, the last people in the world that they would have chosen to be the first witnesses of Christ rising from the dead is women. Is women. And in fact, that's probably why when Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to Cephas, that he appeared to James, the Lord's brother, that he appeared to over 500 at one time, he never mentions the women. Why? Because he's... Paul's establishing a case of credibility and the women would not have fit very well into that case. But God, however, approaches it differently. And he emphasizes here the fact that it was the women who were at the grave. It was the women who were following Christ to the end. And though their faith was not yet mature, it was the women who would bear witness to the resurrection of Christ, even to his disciples. And it's also important that the women were there because the disciples, as you remember, had all fled. And so they, wouldn't, they didn't even know where he was laid. There's no certainty that they even knew that Joseph of Arimathea and had come and taken the body and where his tomb was and where he was laid. And so it was also necessary for the women to be there to show them where, in fact, they were to come to see the empty grave. The empty grave. Now, again, Matthew gives an abbreviated account here. But in fact... All of these women who came early in the grave, Luke informs us that when they came, that they saw that the grave was empty. Mary Magdalene at that point had left and gone back. This is recorded for us by John. Had gone back and reported to Peter and John that the grave was empty. They end up running back later. But in the meantime, the other women are there and they're the ones who actually will encounter encounter the angel who is coming along. But here it is, these women, they show up early in the morning, we're told by other gospel writers, while it was still dark is when they set out on their journey, and now they come to the grave. But Matthew then introduces a second witness. So the first witness is the women. The second witness here is an angel. He says in verse 2, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. This here is the second witness. First, the women come, 
They've seen the empty tomb, although they didn't yet understand the resurrection of Mary Magdalene when she went and reported to the other disciples. But now God is going to affirm what exactly is going on. And he sends an angel, a messenger from heaven. And at the appearance of the angel, he says there was a severe earthquake. You remember, God uses earthquakes to announce some pretty significant events. There was an earthquake at the death of Jesus. If you remember back in verse 51, he says the earth shook and the rocks were split. There's an earthquake here announcing not his death, but his resurrection from the dead. And so there was an earthquake that occurred. Now, there's no reason to believe that this earthquake was throughout Jerusalem and that it caused damage. He specifically says this shaking of the ground was because of the appearance of the angel. And so it was probably just a very local shaking. He also doesn't say that this earthquake is what moved the stone away. That's not really an important point. But he simply says that the angel came. When he came, there was an earthquake. This earthquake marked the presence of the angel, this angel who moved away the stone. What is significant to note is that he descended from heaven. That he descended from heaven. And the main point then of these events in Matthew's record is not to describe how the stone was rolled away or any of those things, but is simply to say that God, a messenger from God, bearing the marks of the presence and the glory of God, has come to announce this truth and affirm it to these women. That's the main point. That he is a messenger from God. And he's coming with this message of Christ's resurrection. But notice the reaction of the guards. It says in verse 3, after describing his appearance as being like lightning and his clothing white as snow, a really incredible sight. Even more so, you can imagine, because of the darkness of the hour when he appeared. So his brightness against the darkness of the sky would have been even more stunning. And again, just as with the earthquake, this brightness of the angel is meant to declare the presence of God, that he is a messenger from God, God who dwells in unapproachable light, here represented by his angel with a shining brightness like lightning that would have been hard for any to look at. It's kind of like the Glory, if you'll remember, when Moses was in the presence of God, Exodus 34, he'd leave. He had to put a veil over his face because the glory shone. You remember that Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration. His glory was before them and they were overwhelmed. All of these things are describing then the glory of the one who came from the presence of God. That one who came with a message of authority. A message of authority. I would just make as a side note here, as overwhelming as the sight of this angel was, consider the fact that your glory in heaven, you who know Christ, will be even greater than this angel. He said in Matthew 13 that the righteous will what? You remember? Shine forth like the sun. Will shine forth like the sun in glory in the kingdom of their father. And the Revelation mentions that we'll be in the glory of the Father. We're going to reflect that glory for eternity. But when we get a glimpse of that glory, this side of heaven, it's overwhelming. And so the guards respond. It says in verse 4, they shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They became like dead men. 
It's positively frightening to believers, but even more to unbelievers. This is pretty amazing, and it's hard to imagine the terror that these guards, these unbelieving guards, would have felt at the sight of this angel. He says they shook. As a matter of fact, that translates the same word that's uh, at the root anyway, that he is called a severe earthquake in verse 2 of chapter 28. It speaks of this violent and this uncontrollable kind of shaking that they felt. And it was so overwhelming to them that they fell down like dead men. In other words, they literally went unconscious from this sight of the angel. They were absolutely overwhelmed, frightened, terrified. And again, this is a reaction that is proper when being in such a majestic presence of God. Through this angel here. You remember John when he saw the risen Christ. Had a similar experience in Revelation 1. His eyes were a flame of fire. His hair white like wool. His feet like burnished bronze when it glows in the fire. And so forth. And when John saw that. What was his reaction? He fell down as a dead man. It's a right reaction to being in the presence of such great glory. But the difference is this. With John and these women in contrast to these guards, is that later he's going to extend comfort to these women. The angel will say, do not fear. But these guards had no such comfort, had no such comfort. They simply were terrified and left in their terror and lying there unconscious. And at some point, obviously, ran back and ran away out of fear of all of these events that they saw taking place before their eyes. And there is something for us to notice here, and that's this. And Calvin actually captures it. Let me, let me use his words. He says, Certainly it is proper that the majesty of God should strike both terror and fear indiscriminately into the godly as well as the reprobate, that is the unbelieving, that all flesh may be silent before his face. But when the Lord has humbled and subdued his elect, he immediately mitigates their dread, as with John, where he says, Do not fear. The angel who says, Do not fear, and gives words of comfort. He mitigates their dread by the sweetness of his grace, heals the wound which he has afflicted. But the reprobate, on the other hand, he either overwhelms by sudden dread or suffers to languish in slow torments. Imagine that. If the presence of an angel, even a glorious holy angel, could cause such fear to unbelieving guards to shake violently and go unconscious, imagine what kind of fear the unbelieving sinner will face when he stands fully exposed in the presence of God and all of the holy angels on that great day of judgment. That is a foretaste, in fact, of the fear that will be in the hearts of the unbelieving. But also it is a word of comfort to the believing. Look at verse 5, the message of the angel. So while they're overwhelmed with terror, as all unbelievers will be when they stand in the presence of God... To the women, he says this, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. So even more amazing than the appearance of the angel is his message that Jesus has risen from the dead. That Jesus has risen from the dead. And in order to prove that, go back up to verse 2, he rolled away the stone. The rolling away of the stone had nothing to do with letting Jesus out. He who had authority to raise himself from the dead, he who was raised by the Father, he who was raised in the power of the Holy Spirit, didn't need an angel to move the stone, no. The stone was rolled away so that others could go inside. 
It wasn't to let Jesus out. It was let to women and the disciples and anyone who had come to look in to realize that it was empty. It was an empty tomb. And so this is confirmed again by the angel's words. He says, I know you seek Jesus. He's not here. He's been raised. So he says, come, see the place where he was laid. And this is meant to stand in direct contrast to the words of the Jewish leaders in verse 64. He says, they, as they said to Pilate, you know, put a guard there, lest his disciples take him away and say he's risen from the dead. And in fact, here, it's not the disciples. They're out hiding in fear in somewhere in Jerusalem. It wasn't the disciples they needed to fear. It was the angel from heaven who was going to bring this message. They would bring it later. This was God affirming what he had done and what he was doing. Namely, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, Luke 24 tells us that there were, in fact, two angels who were present during this scene. Two angels who were present. And Luke describes them this way. Two men in dazzling clothing, in dazzling clothing, at whose appearance the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. Matthew and Mark mention only one angel because he is the main angel who speaks. And the message that he speaks is one of the glory of the resurrection of Christ, the very foundation of Christianity. He isn't in the grave. Jesus is not in the grave. This is, beloved, the message of hope that these weak disciples needed. And consider this reality. This is the message he says, go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. It was the message that they needed to hear. It's the message that we need to hear. But what I want you to notice is this, that they were transformed or would be later transformed by this message because of this reality, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Notice, their circumstances would not change. The Roman nation would still be against them. The Jews would still be against them. But what changed was this fact. Jesus has been raised from the dead. All of a sudden, all the dangers they faced, all of the fear that they felt, all of the hopelessness that filled their hearts was radically changed. The fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead changed everything. It changed everything for for them, and it changes everything for us. Everything. There's There's not a threat in this world. There's not a... There's not a command of Christ. There's not a single thing that can happen to God's children that can destroy them because Christ has been raised. Every command of Christ has with it the full authority of God verified in the fact that he was raised from the dead. And I want you to notice this, that it was going to be their faith. It was this very truth that Christ raised from the dead that was to be the foundation of their courage. And so he tells them to go quickly and tell his disciples that he has been raised from the dead. Now, I want to make just a couple of observations on this rather quickly. And the first is this. First, this shows to us one common theme throughout the Gospels, but one that is an encouragement to our hearts, namely this. It shows how slow we are to believe the promises of God, but how patient God is to lead us to grow in our understanding of truth. Now, the fact that he has to tell them to go and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead 
It shows the patience of God. I'll mention that in a bit. But it also shows this sort of stubborn ignorance that was a part of the disciples and is a part of our own lives. The scriptures anticipated that the Messiah would die and that he would rise. God had said this over and over. In fact, when Peter gives his sermon, he's going to argue from the Old Testament in Psalm 16. This is just exactly what God had said in his word. They should have inferred that from Isaiah 53, that he would give himself up as a guilt offering, as the one who would see the the fruit of that offering, the people whom he came to redeem. Of Zechariah 12.10, the prophet anticipated that they would look on the one whom they had pierced, the one who was going to return in power and glory to Jerusalem and destroy the enemies of God. So God had borne witness to this in Scripture. Christ had told them many times that he was to go and to be destroyed and that were to be killed, to be rejected, to be crucified, and to rise again on the third day. He told them this repeatedly. You know these. I'm just going to remind you of some of them. He told Peter in chapter 16. He began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised on the third day. He repeated this several times, chapter 17, twice. He repeats it again in chapter 20. He repeats it again in chapter 25 when he says this, the Son of Man is going to come and sit on his glorious throne. They should have remembered these promises, but they... They weren't. They hadn't. And so they were fearful. And the reason is, is because they had failed to believe in the words of Christ. As a matter of fact, John 20 says this, for after James and John had received the message from Mary Magdalene that the tomb was empty, he said, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus was to rise from the dead. He told Thomas in John 20 that he was not to be unbelieving, but believing. To the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said, O foolish men, and this is after they heard the report of the women who also announced to them the message of the angel. He said to these two disciples, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. So their problem was not lack of information. It wasn't lack of God's preparation for them. Their problem was this, a lack of faith in what he said. They simply didn't believe it. They simply didn't believe it. They just certainly couldn't grasp it. The matter of fact, the reason the women were there and the very reason that the disciples weren't there is the same reason. Both of them were unbelieving. Both of them were unbelieving. Both of them had missed everything that Christ had said. Are you any different than that? Am I any different than that? How often, if we simply acted in accordance with everything we knew to be true, the information that we had from God's word, how would that radically transform your life? And how would it radically transform mine? You see, we're not really so different than these disciples, are we? We're not really so different. It's not that there's a lack of God giving us everything that is sufficient for life and godliness. It's a lack of our faith and taking him at his word and understanding it and living accordingly. But God is patient. God is patient, patiently and providentially leading them to believe and understand the truth. And so what does this angel do that speaks to them? Well, Luke records for us a little more fully. Let me just read it to you. Luke chapter 24. The angel he spoke said this. He says, why do you seek 
the living one among the dead. He is not here in verse 6, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And here's what I want you to notice about that, that what we need to notice together is this. Where does the angel point them? He points them back to the words of Christ. He points them back to the words of Christ. And there's a lesson here. God is always pointing us and leading us back to his promises and to his word. All of their fear, all of what they were feeling, all of what we feel when we go to trials, when we feel abandoned, when we feel dismayed over the things that God is doing in our life. God is leading us first and foremost to his word, which leads us always back to him. And so the angel points them back to his word. He wants to give them a better understanding of the word. And he says, see, this is what he said. This is what he said. Believe his word. Believe his testimony. This is what God says to us. Believe my testimony. Believe my word. When our world is upside down, when we need the comfort and the encouragement, when we need instruction, when we need to gain perspective on our lives, and when we need to gain perspective on our trials, God points us back to his word and he says, look, look at what I've said. Look at what I'm doing. Look at who I am. When we go through trials, when we go through difficulties, it should lead us to God's word, not away from it. To God's words, not away from it. And so here God patiently encourages these unbelieving and weak faith, those sincere followers, and he points them back to his word and specifically the word of the promise that Jesus was to rise from the dead. And now he's done it. And this secondly shows us the tenderness of God, the gentleness and the tenderness of Christ toward the weakness of his own. Matter of fact, Mark 16, 7 tells us that the angel specifically mentioned that the women were to go and to tell Peter. Tell Peter. Why tell Peter? Why would he specifically mention Peter? Well, that's fairly obvious. Peter was the one who failed so badly and no doubt needed the extra encouragement. You can only imagine how he felt. Here he had, who had boasted so loudly, had so denied the Lord, he was ashamed. He was broken. He was embarrassed, which is part of his shame. He felt like he failed the Lord, and in fact, he had felt the Lord. He was distraught. He felt he was useless. He had nothing to offer. He had thrown everything away in his moment of weakness. He'd set a bad example, him who was to be a leader. And what does Christ do? He sends a message, and he says, Go to Peter. Go to Peter. Tell Peter that I have risen from the grave. Tell Peter, make sure that Peter hears the news that I have risen from the grave. Encourage him. Go let him know. And beloved, that's how God treats us. That's how he treats us who are his own. There's not a strong rebuke. There's a time for that. And sometimes he does it. But most often in our weakness, he comes in tenderness. He comes in gentleness. He knows that we're weak and faltering Disciples, He knows that we fail. He knows that we're going to be shamed from our actions. He knows that we're going to be distraught and feel useless in his kingdom. And so he sends a special word to Peter and he encourages us as well. As a matter of fact, Paul says this, describing all of us. 
That we, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world, the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that mo- no man may boast before the Lord. He knows that who, that's who we are. The weak, the despised, the foolish, those who need constant comfort. Matter of fact, this is really an illustration of what Jesus said back in Matthew 12. He said, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. He's kind. He's gentle. And so he tells these women, go and let my disciples know. They're fearful, but they need to know. They need to gain strength, and they need to gain courage. And so go tell them that I have risen, that Jesus has risen from the dead. And it's, he even reminds them of their relationship to him. Remember, they, they've all abandoned Christ, but Christ comes and he seeks them out. They're not seeking him, but Christ is seeking them. Look at the message of the angel. Twice he tells them, he says, go tell his disciples. Go tell his disciples. Matthew records for us again in verse 8. They are his true followers. They're weak. They let him down. They needed encouragement. They're displaying weakness. But God doesn't disown them. These are his children. These are his disciples. These are the very ones he came to redeem. And so he sends them an angel and he says, let them know. Let them know. He looks to us and reminds us that God so often deals with us too in our failings and in our weakness. Let them know, I have risen from the grave. I have atoned for your sin. I am your interceder. I am the one who has reconciled you to God. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do not be weak and discouraged, but be encouraged. Let's look lastly at this then, the witness of Jesus. So God has given the witness of the women who were there at the tomb. God has given the witness of his heavenly angel to the resurrection of Jesus, to the gentleness of Jesus toward his own. But most importantly, he's given the witness of Jesus himself. This is, in fact, again, the greatest witness. The greatest witness isn't, in fact, that the angel, that the tomb is empty. That's significant. The greatest witness isn't the fact that the angel had come from heaven and told the women. The greatest witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is this. The presence of Jesus himself. The presence of Jesus himself. The empty tomb is evidence enough. The absence of the body ever being presented is evidence enough. The change brought about in the disciples is evidence enough. But above all these things is the fact that Jesus appeared to his disciples. And so he gives this wonderful word in verse 9. As the other women are off and running back to tell the disciples. In verse 9 it says, And behold, Jesus met them and he greeted them. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Jesus met them. This is absolutely astounding. It's not unlike the feeling they must have felt. Probably not unlike the woman at the well. If you ever read slowly through that, you've been struck as well of the emotions that woman must have felt when all of a sudden she's talking about the Messiah and Jesus, this man standing right next to her, says what? I'm he. I am. That's me. Can you imagine how her heart must have been thrown to the floor to realize this is the one? This is the one our whole nation is hoped in and he's the one here speaking to me? It's been similar for these women who are running away with this message of the angel to tell the disciples their heart, it says in verse 8, is filled with fear and with great joy and they're running and their emotions are all over the place. And here all of a sudden... 
Out of nowhere, Jesus meets them on the road. He meets them on the road. And he gives them another word of encouragement. And he says, greetings, greetings. Now, most of the translations have greetings. And that's probably the best way to take it. Some uh, older translations have hail, which is like greetings. But it is interesting that he uses a a word here in the exact form of this word that's used only one time in Matthew in this form, and that is, in this precise form, and that is back in Matthew chapter 5 when he tells them to rejoice. In that case, verse 12, to rejoice at their sufferings. And this exact form is translated that way in its other appearances in the New Testament. So while it is a greeting here, the implication is that it's something more. I mean, joy is to be the mark of Jesus' disciples, it is part of what filled their hearts as they're running to give this message to the other disciples. In either case, whether it should be translated greetings or rejoice, it is what they felt. It is what they felt. And now this is, the message is confirmed to them, not by another angel, not by an empty tomb, but Jesus himself who met them on the road. And what was their response? They fell at his feet. They took hold of his feet, excuse me, And they worshipped him. Again, overwhelming emotion. And again, it's difficult to imagine all that was in their heart. It may be compared in some way or in some measure to the kind of joy that fills the heart of a true disciple when you first understand the gospel. Or in those moments of faith that sometimes we have as believers, the Spirit gives us that, that overwhelms us with the sense of the truthfulness and the reality of the gospel and of his presence and our reconciliation to the Father, through the Son, through Christ. Who knows what emotions, but it was absolutely overwhelming. And again, it might even be something of like is pictured by Jude in Jude 24 when he says that we'll be in his presence blameless with great joy. Great joy. Have you ever imagined, have you ever imagined or thought to yourself what that would be like the first moment when you see Jesus face to face? Have you ever thought what that would be like that first moment when you're in the presence of his glory, what you would feel? Have you ever thought about the flood of emotions as all of a sudden you're, you're before the one that you've laid hold of by faith and you have in that instant the awareness of your life, both that he redeemed and that you have offered to him? There's a song along these lines that I think of. I think it kind of captures a little bit of the emotions that we might feel or the wonder at it that we see displayed even in these women. It goes like this. You probably know the song. I won't sing it. I'll just read it. I'm tempted to sing. I'm singing it in my heart, but... I'll read it. He says, I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine... Imagine the joy, imagine the amazement that would fill your heart and that will fill your heart when you stand before the risen Christ. Imagine what these women felt as they now see the Lord they thought was dead, their heart filled with this great message of his resurrection and now they see him and what is their first response? They took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Note they did not run away from him as the guards did who were unbelieving but they ran to him. Beloved, that's the heart of a true disciple. That's the heart of a true disciple. The first instinct of the heart of a regenerate 
believer, which is a true believer, is to run to Christ. It's to run to Him. It's a natural instinct of a redeemed heart that has seen His glory. It's the natural instinct of one who loves Christ is to run to Him, not away from Him. Even in times of fear, even in times of shame and confession, it is to run to Christ. It is to run to Him. It is to lay hold of Him. It is to seek His mercy. It is, as these women did, to worship Him. To worship Him. Don't miss that they took hold of His feet. Why is that important? This wasn't an illusion. This wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't their imagination gone wild. It was the real physical feet of Jesus Christ. It was the feet of Jesus Christ that was not in the tomb, but was raised and standing before them. It was the feet of their Savior. As noted last week, we won't mention it now. I want to wrap up. But is this, it's the, Jesus' body was a prototype of our resurrection body. We're conformed to the body of His glory, Paul says. It was different in some ways. He had the wounds that stand as a reminder of his sacrifice. He has a particular glory as the Son of God in flesh, the Son of God incarnate, the Son of God resurrected. There is a unique glory that he has, but the glory that he has as the resurrected Savior is nonetheless as a physical man resurrected. He is the first fruits. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And so what does Jesus tell them? Another word of tenderness. That's the last thing I'll note here and we'll pick it up next week. Look what he says. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And just meaning that their heart was filled with fear standing before him. But he says, do not be afraid. Go and take word, listen, to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Not his disciples, not even his friends, as he says in John 15, but he says, to my brethren, to my brethren. He uses that phrase one other time in Matthew 25, 40, at the resurrected Christ when he returns. He says, you've done these things to the least of my brethren. Here he's referring to the disciples who are representative, representing Jesus's, this new relationship, this relationship of the new covenant that is emphasized here it is one of how we relate to the father with a new intimacy and spiritual reality in christ he says go to my brethren this is an intimate incredible statement of intimacy and relationship as a matter of fact later he'll say something he'll tell uh, mary magdalene in john chapter 20 it's recorded to to go and tell his brethren uh, with the message of his resurrection. But he says this to her. What is, he, what is she to tell them? Go tell my brethren that I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. In other words, by saying this, Jesus is saying more than just go tell my disciples. He's saying, go tell those that I've redeemed who are not merely who are not merely my disciples, but are ones who are in me now, I relate to you as my brethren, and who come to the Father in me, who now go to the Father as my brethren, who speak to the Father, and who walk with the Father, and who love the Father, and who know the Father as I have known the Father, as I have walked with the Father, as I have obeyed the Father. 
You are my brethren. You are my brethren. This is an incredible statement of intimacy and of relationship. For us, beloved, this is really not the exact same, but it is, it is reflective of Paul's own teaching, a key teaching in Paul that we are adopted into the family of God through Christ. That in Christ we stand as sons and daughters. We relate to the Father through Him as children. As children. He says, go tell my brethren. Go tell my brethren, the ones that I've redeemed. Go let them know that I've risen and to meet me in Galilee and there will they'll see me. And this is important in Matthew's In Matthew's testimony, they will see me. They will see me. He who has risen was observed. He who has risen was the one who was seen by not only the women, not only by the disciples, not only by the 500 or by them. He was seen. He was touched. He was handled. He was held. He is, in fact, the one who has risen from the dead. Now, Thomas later on would need to put his hands, as we mentioned, in his side and see them, see the reality of it. But Jesus said, you know what? Blessed are those who did not see and believe. Blessed are those who did not see and believe. That's us, beloved. We don't see the risen Christ, but we have the testimony of it here. We have the reality of it confirmed in our hearts, not only by the testimony that is an authentic witness, which we'll see next week, but also the testimony in our hearts by faith of the reality of Christ crucified and risen for his own, that we come to God through him as children who are reconciled to the Father through Christ. And we have this table that reminds us of that glorious fact that we remember together. So when we come to this table, we are to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are to remember that he who gave us this meal is he who died, who rose and is returning, who even now by the Spirit we have a present fellowship with. So let's pray and prepare our hearts together as we remember the table. And then we'll do so together. Father, thank you for the testimony of your word. Thank you for the glorious provision of a Savior. Help us now as we think of the wonder of the resurrection, as we think of the wonder of our sins forgiven, as we think of the wonder of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, now interceding for us with the Spirit, as we think of the glory of his return. Help us to have faith. Help us to have the perspective on your accomplishing your purposes that are summing up of all things in Christ. And help us to lay hold of the glory of the resurrection for our salvation, but not only our salvation for our life, to know that all things are governed by him who is Lord of the heavens and earth. And in your resurrection and in our Lord and in your salvation, we have an unshakable and an undying hope. It is in your name, Christ, we pray. Amen.